At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. We invite you to join us for our series, Good Morning, as we learn from the cries of Israel recorded in the book of Lamentations. Together, we'll discover the depth of God's love for us, even in seasons of suffering, and learn to take our sorrows to the Savior. We are in Lamentations chapter 4. Lamentations chapter 4, so great to have these families here with us today uh, for this parent-child dedication. Uh, Happy Father's Day to all the dads out there. Uh, I'm so grateful that we have our church family where there are so many dads that I've been uh, learning from, inspired by, helped by, whether they're, some of them are younger than me, some of them are older than me, but uh, I learned so much from you. So thank you for being the dads that you are. Uh, We wanted to celebrate you, dad, uh, and so we thought we could give you uh, a spiritual book, right? Uh, but we know that your load is heavy, and so we went with donuts, okay? Uh, so you can get them on your way out. They are from uh, Donut Cutter, the best. So make sure you get your donuts on the way out. But happy Father's Day. Can we give it up for the dads? Yes. <clears throat> You know, earlier today we had some baptisms, and baptism is that symbol where, uh, of our entrance into the family of our Heavenly Father. And uh, with this child, parent-child dedication, we also have our kids' camp that starts tomorrow, which is why we have these different artifacts throughout the building. And so, um, so just be praying. We need your prayers for Eric leading the camp, for the staff, and all the army of volunteers, because it's just such an important time for us to pour into the children of the family. The kids' camp is a, a perfect example of what Ed was talking about, how we as a church body come around parents uh, in this mission to uh, raise our children in the admonition of the Lord. Well, my wife and I love families. Uh, I had talked to you about this a few months back, how we were working on this online project to to work with couples as they transition into parenthood. That transition is one of the most challenging ones that a couple, any couple will go through, and the majority of them register this transition uh, in a negative way on their marriage. And so we wanna work with them to help strengthen them as they become parents. So just watch this video to learn a little bit about what we're doing. When baby number one arrives, your world will stop. attention goes to baby. Parents enroll in classes, read books, buy countless pieces of equipment, but none of these things is what baby needs most. The security of having parents who cherish one another. You are one team. Decide that you win together or you lose together. So we've leaned on clinical research, our work with hundreds of couples, and our Christian faith to create Preparing for Baby Number One because we know that just like your home, your marriage needs baby-proofing. Your spouse is not the same person you met on your first date. They're constantly changing, and you can't get tired of learning about their changes. In our culture, we throw around the words, I'm sorry, too easily. I'm sorry is not the same as would you please forgive me. Marriage can only mature and get to deeper levels of intimacy, friendship, and companionship when it's tested. So we invite you to join us on an eight-week journey to giving your baby what he or she needs most. Choose to grab hands and face the world as one so nothing, not even baby, will pull you apart. 
Yeah, so that's what we're doing. So, uh, you know, you can pray for us about that. You can also follow us on Instagram at Preparing for Baby One. Uh, and then just pray. We, we're excited to see where the Lord takes us with this. Okay, Lamentations chapter four. Let's go to our Heavenly Father in prayer. Our Lord, our King, we bring before you the fathers in our congregation. We thank you for them, for their faith in you, for their love for you and for their families, for their hope that is placed not in the things of this world, but in the life that you have for us. Father, make them, make us strong for the purposes you have for us, for our families. Lord, we want families to do well today. They need your mercy and grace. They need your truth and love. They need your promises and acceptance. We pray for kids camp. We pray for staff and volunteers to have big hearts for the big souls in these little bodies. Father, draw the children to yourself with the unassailable force of the love of Jesus. Father, we know that the battle for their minds and hearts is fierce. But we know the love of Christ is greater still. And now, Lord, we come to your word, your good, true, transforming, world-making word. Feed us by it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Lamentations 4, verse 1. How the gold has grown dim. How the pure gold is changed. The holy stones lie scattered at the head of every street. The precious sons of Zion, worth their weight in fine gold. How they are regarded as earthen pots the work of a potter's hands. Even jackals offer the breast. They nurse their young, but the daughter of my people has become cruel like the ostriches in the wilderness. The tongue of the nursing infant sticks to the roof of its mouth for thirst. The children beg for food, but no one gives to them the word of the Lord. As Americans, we love before and after stories. That's the impulse behind shows like America's Got Talent, right? Who are these uh, obscure people before they were discovered and then what happened to them after they found fame? Now, there's a different kind of before and after story, one that we have understandably less appetite for, but they're no less common than the rags to riches stories that we love. And that's the story of riches to rags, the descent into ruin. Now, there's... One of the most ghastly portrayals of the descent into ruin has to be Victor Hugo's Fantine. Fantine is one of the main characters in his novel, Les Miserables, and she's the mother of Cosette, the little girl whose future, Jean Valjean, the main character in the novel, uh, becomes obsessed with protecting. But I want to read you how Victor Hugo describes Fantine when she was in her prime. He says, Fantine was beautiful and remained pure as long as she could. She was a lovely blonde with fine teeth. She had gold and pearls for her dowry, but her gold was on her head and her pearls were in her mouth. So he's talking about her, gold, her hair being her gold and her teeth being her pearls. But then as time goes on and Cosette's father leaves her, she becomes desperate, desperate to provide for her daughter. And so she does desperate things. She sells her hair and then her, her two front teeth and then her body. When the teeth incident happens, she looks at herself in the mirror and it was a bloody smile, Victor Hugo writes. A reddish saliva soiled the corners of her lips and she had a black hole in her mouth. 
the two teeth had been extracted. And so in horror, she threw the mirror that, uh, out the window. But here we see Fantine go from this vibrant, radiant woman with this long, wavy, silky hair, uh, the envy of many, and these perfect, straight, pearly white teeth at a time when very few ha people had them. And she goes and becomes this downtrodden, beaten down woman of the night. Her hair buzzed and patchy, her teeth gone, her mouth became black like a cave. And as we read or watch her descend into ruin, we can't believe it. We mourn her despair, protest the injustice, and cry because we know that Fontaine's fate has throughout history visited millions of vulnerable women. As we continue this series, Good morning, bringing our sorrow to the Savior. We come to chapter four today. And in chapter four, the poet takes us up close to the streets of Jerusalem and he makes us look at the descent into ruin of a people, his people, God's people. He makes us look at the colors turning pale and feel the heat and see mothers in despair and lament the loss of order and of everything that is good. And so what do we see? What are we going to see in this descent into ruin? Because here's the thing. Oftentimes, we're only aware when people go and blow something up and, and destroy their lives. Maybe it's something that grabs headlines, something very public, or something bigger in our own lives. What we don't realize is that oftentimes it's gradually that the, the descent into ruin happens to any of us. And so it's scriptures like these that give us such a stark portrayal of what descent into ruin looks like that can help us, can help bring us out of our, our numbness to this descent into ruin. And so what do we see in this descent into ruin? We see precious people become worthless. Precious people become worthless. Look at verse one. How the gold has grown dim. How the pure gold is changed. The holy stones lie scattered at the head of every street. The precious sons of Zion worth their weight in fine gold. How they are regarded as earthen pots, the work of a potter's hands. So here the poet goes back to the first word of the entire poem in chapter one, verse one. How? Remember, how lonely sits the city that was full of people. It's a word of disbelief at what he sees before his eyes, except here he uses it twice. How the gold has grown dim. How the pure gold is changed. The reference seems to be to the objects of gold in the temple that having been ransacked and desecrated now lie about on the streets mired in dirt. Imagine if the Louvre Museum in Paris was bombed and people found all kinds of pieces of the Mona Lisa, Venus de Milo, the coronation of Napoleon and other masterpieces just strewn about on the street. Imagine the sense of loss to Western civilization. That's kind of what the poet is lamenting here, except it goes deeper because this goes to the core of their national identity and their religious life. But it's not just the objects of gold that he's lamenting, it's the people. Did you see verse two? He says, the precious sons of Zion worth their weight in gold, how they are regarded as earthen pots. You see, Zion's people once 
seen as worth their weight in gold, are now regarded as clay vessels, worthless vessels. That's the descent into ruin. And then he begins to talk about the effects of famine due to siege warfare. Verse three, he says, even jackals offer the breast. They nurse their young, but the daughter of my people has become cruel like the ostriches in the wilderness. The tongue of the nursing infant sticks to the roof of its mouth for thirst. The children beg for food, but not, no one gives to them. Jackals and ostriches appear as a pair in a number of scriptures. They inhabited the wilderness and made these unpleasant screeching sounds. Ostriches are described as abandoning their eggs in Job 39. But the comparison being made is that even jackals, these despicable animals, nurse and care for their young. But the women of Israel under siege could not because the infants and the babies are starving to death. They can't feed them. In fact, they're described as cruel, like ostriches in the wilderness. It says the tongue of the infant sticks to, to the roof of his mouth for thirst. Maybe they can't even cry anymore. There's no tears. They're dehydrated. We've all seen the pictures of starving children in other parts of the world. Their rib cages show. Their bellies are bloated. These children are begging for food, but no one gives it to them. There is no food. Verse five, those who once feasted on delicacies perish in the streets. Those who were brought up in purple embrace ash heaps. For the chastisement of the daughter of my people has been greater than the punishment of Sodom, which was overthrown in a moment, and no hands were wrung for her. Her princes were purer than snow, whiter than milk. Their bodies were more ruddy than coral. The beauty of their form was like sapphire. Now their face is blacker than soot. They are not recognized in the streets. Their skin has shriveled on their bones. It has become as dry as wood. The beast in Beauty and the Beast remains in the castle. But imagine if instead of becoming a beast and instead of remaining in the castle, the prince was sentenced because of his pride and selfishness to live not in the village among the commoners, but in a garbage dump among the lowest of criminals and paupers. That's what verse five is describing. He says, those who feasted on delicacies perish on the street. Those brought up in purple embrace ash heaps. Purple and delicacies, these were the clothing and food of the elite. But now people are starving and starving is a slow, painful, savage way to die. The poet says in verse six, he talks about Sodom. Remember Sodom from Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis? Sodom was the apex of godlessness in the Old Testament. But the, the poet says Sodom was more fortunate than Jerusalem. Why? Because at least the destruction of Sodom was sudden. In a moment, he says. But here, Jerusalem is languishing, languishing under siege, starving to death at the hands of savage armies. At least for Sodom, it came directly from God and sulfur and fire. They were gone in a moment. And so he's, he's looking at the destruction of Sodom with jealousy. That's how intense things are. And then in verses seven and eight, he speaks of the transformation of their bodies. Now we are a culture that's very body conscious, very body image conscious. You know, we're constantly working on our biceps, 
right? And we are taking our, our we're walking our steps, we're on the treadmill, we're, we're, we're doing all kinds of things just to make sure there's a transformation in this direction for our bodies, in the prospering, flourishing direction. In verses seven and eight, the poet talks about the transformation to their bodies because of hunger, because of heat. He says they used to be strong, whiter than milk, more ruddy than coral, beautiful like sapphire, no more. Now their skin is shriveling up on their bones. It's not supple and vibrant. It's dry as wood, he says. You know, this siege went on for years. Verse nine, happier were the victims of the sword than the victims of hunger who wasted away, pierced by lack of the fruits of the field. So verse nine begins with the word good, here translated happier. Happier? What could be happy about this crisis? Dying by the sword, he says. Happier are those who died by the sword than those who died by hunger. You see how desperate it is? The things that we, con- we, we would consider awful He's saying, that would be amazing. Because the slow death of famine leads to some horrible, unthinkable practices. Practices that are well documented. Things like cannibalism. Pay careful attention to verse 10. The hands of compassionate women have boiled their own children. They became their food during the destruction of the daughter of my people. I won't say anything else about this. It's not the first time that this practice comes up in the poem. He brought it up in chapter 2. Do you see the descent into ruin? It is graphic, painful, slow. Precious people become worthless. Precious people become worthless. Israel has faced the cup of God's wrath. They languished on the streets because through the centuries they rejected God's protection. Which leads to our next point. What do we see in this descent into ruin? We see idolatrous leaders lose God's protection. Look at verse 11. The Lord gave full vent to his wrath. He poured out his hot anger and he kindled a fire in Zion that consumed its foundations. The kings of the earth did not believe, nor any of the inhabitants of the world, that foe or enemy could enter the gates of Jerusalem. This was for the sins of her prophets and the iniquities of her priests who shed in the midst of her the blood of the righteous. They wandered blind through the streets. They were so defiled with blood that no one was able to touch their garments. Away, unclean, people cried at them. Away, away, do not touch. So they became fugitives and wanderers. People said among the nations, they shall stay with us no longer. The Lord himself has scattered them. He will regard them no more. No honor was shown to the priests, no favor to the elders. The reason Judah finds itself desolate is because the Lord gave full vent to his wrath. Why? Well, because before we get to why, we see in verse 12 vestiges of this belief that Jerusalem was impregnable. 
impregnable, that it was a fortress. Psalm 48 celebrates the fact that this fortress, that Mount Zion, Jerusalem, was because God made them so. Psalm 48 says, listen to this, Mount Zion, so this is in their day of glory, the city of the great king, within her citadels, God has made himself known as a fortress. Isn't that awesome? God has come and parked himself in their midst and they're impregnable, they're a fortress. I remember when I first became a Christian, I was 18 years old, I lived in New York, I hardly knew anyone or anything, but man, I felt so strong, I felt so bold. I was not afraid of anything because I knew that God was with me. So good. I'm sure you've had that, 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 that feeling and that sense of God is with me. That's what Psalm 48 celebrates, that God is with Zion and so they cannot be broken into. Which is why in verse 12, we see that it was difficult for kings and others in the world to believe that foe or enemy could enter through the gates of Jerusalem. So why? Why now? is Zion consumed to its foundations. Verse 13 tells us, because of the sins of her prophets and the iniquities of her priests who shed in the midst of her the blood of the righteous. You see, the true prophets of God had been criticizing for centuries the false prophets who brought people a word that was not from God and they, the true prophets would criticize the priests for their lack of holiness. Without righteous leadership, the people became defiled. Isaiah has this wonderful, sad passage though, where God, Israel is described as the vineyard of God's planting, his pleasant planting. It's describing this relationship, this covenant relationship that God has with Israel. But then Isaiah says, and he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. In other words, God planted Israel in a way that no other nation had the favor of God. But what he comes and he finds in Israel is the opposite of what he should have found. Instead of justice, he finds bloodshed, war, oppression. So the fate of these prophets and priests was severe. They became wonders during the siege and blind. Prophets who should have seen and heeded God's word become blind. The priests became defiled ritually and morally. There's different kinds of defilement of, 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 of impurity. Ritual impurity is present when, uh, because of certain bodily discharges, because of contact with a corpse or with a leper, moral impurity came uh, through sexual sin, through idolatry, through bloodshed. Well, they're guilty of both. The leaders of Israel at this time are guilty of both. And so the poem tells us they become wonders. They're shunned. People are saying, away, away, do not touch them. They're unclean. But what's worst of all is that God himself turns from them. Did you see verse 16? The Lord himself has scattered them. He will regard them no more. No honor was shown to the priests, no favor to the elders. For 40 years through Jeremiah, God had warned prophets and priests and elders, but they rejected Jeremiah, and so now God rejected them. And they lose, they lost their protection. It's gone. What else do we see in this descent into ruin? We see the end comes with a ray of hope, 
a ray of hope. Look at verse 17. Our eyes failed, ever watching vainly for help. In our watching, we watched for a nation which could not save. They dogged our steps so that we could not walk in our streets. Our end drew near. Our days were numbered, for our end had come. Our pursuers were swifter than the eagles in the heavens. They chased us on the mountains. They lay in wait for us in the wilderness. The breath of our nostrils, the Lord's anointed, was captured in their pits, of whom we said, under his shadow we shall live among the nations. Rejoice and be glad, O daughter of Eden, you who dwell in the land of Uz. But to you also the cup shall pass. You shall become drunk and strip yourself bare. The punishment of your iniquity, O daughter of Zion, is accomplished. He will keep you in exile no longer. But your iniquity, O daughter of Edom, he will punish. He will uncover your sins. So here we hear of the end. Now, if you want to, go to 2 Kings 25. Judah hoped in vain for another nation to come and save them, but none came, none could. Their attackers were sent by God. They were swifter, swift and strong. In verse 20, it says, the breath of our nostrils, the Lord's anointed. That's likely a reference to King Zedekiah who escaped during the siege, but then was captured. But for the last few weeks, we've been hearing this poetic rendition, this poetic account of the fall of Jerusalem. I want us now to read a historical account of the same event. 2 Kings 25, verse 1. And in the ninth year of his reign, in the tenth month, on the tenth day of the month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came with all his army against Jerusalem and laid siege to it. And they built siege works all around it. So the city was besieged till the eleventh year of King Zedekiah. On the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine was so severe in the city, that there was no food for the people of the land. Then a breach was made in the city. And all the men of war fled by night by the way of the gate between the two walls by the king's garden. And the Chaldeans were around the city. And they went in the direction of the Arabah. But the army of the Chaldeans pursued the king and overtook him in the plains of Jericho. And all his army was scattered from him. Then they captured the king and brought him up to the king of Babylon at Riblah. And they passed sentence on him. They slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes and put out the eyes of Zedekiah and bound him in chains and took him to Babylon. Verse 8. In the fifth month, on the seventh day of the month, that was the 19th year of King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. So this is 10 years later. Nabuzaradan, the captain of the bodyguard, a servant of the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem. And he burned the house of the Lord and the king's house and all the houses of Jerusalem. Every great house he burned down. And all the army of the Chaldeans who were with the captain of the guard broke down the walls around Jerusalem. And the rest of the people who were left in the city and the deserters who had deserted to the king of Babylon together with the rest of the multitude, Nabuzaradan, the captain of the guard, carried into exile. From this devastating vantage point of the end comes a ray of hope. It's one of the highest notes of hope in the entire poem is Lamentations 4.22.
And it says, the punishment of your iniquity, O daughter of Zion, is accomplished. He, God, will keep you in exile no longer. It's amazing. You see, God will not afflict forever. In fact, the prophet Isaiah in chapters 40 through 55 speaks of a number, many, many promises that God brings to his people following the exile that reverse, reverse the most pointed of Zion's laments. There's so many of them. In fact, a great exercise for you this week would be to read Lamentations and Isaiah 40 through 55 side by side and just see, just see what God is saying through Isaiah that reverses what Lamentations says here. For example, in Lamentations, Lady Zion could not find anyone to comfort them. We read this refrain a number of times, but she had no one to comfort her. She had no one to comfort her. There was no one found to comfort her. But in Isaiah 40, what are the first words that open this incredible section of scripture about what God has for his people after the exile? Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry out to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Do you see? A word of comfort is coming and it's gonna envelop them. In Lamentations, the children of Lady Zion She's mourning the loss of all her children. But in Isaiah 49, we read, the children of your bereavement will yet say in your ears, the room is too narrow for me. Prepare room for me to dwell in. What is God saying? I'm gonna yet again flood my people with offspring from all over the nations. In Lamentations, the watchmen of the city watched in vain. They watched and watched in vain for another nation to come and save them. None came, none could. But in Isaiah 52, we read, the voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voices together, they sing for joy, for eye to eye they see the return of Yahweh to Zion. And of course, we know that that text comes to greater fulfillment when Jesus comes on the scene. God has returned to his people. No one could have envisioned that he would come in the flesh. This is just a mere sampling of the many promises that God lavishes on his people when it seemed that everything had come to an end. Listen, in fact, in reality, the only thing that would come to an end was their punishment. It'd be done. Because after the exile, there would yet be a glorious beginning for Israel, a new beginning. Why? Because God was in covenant with them and he would not rescind it. God visits iniquity to the third and fourth generation, but he shows steadfast love and mercy to the thousands. And so church, let's learn from this gruesome and grim chapter in Israel's history. Without God, people perish. Without God, people perish. There's a warning for us all in this lament. I know we love the stories of rags to riches. I know we love them. But we have to take a few moments to look at the descent into ruin that comes to everyone who doesn't know God or take him seriously. Without God, we perish. 
Precious people become worthless. Look at your own life. Are you able to see the ways that ruin comes into your life? Are you able to see it? Because it's so easy for us to go from living by faith to living by sight, living by wisdom, human wisdom, living by maturity, living by experience, living by desire, living by the values of this world. Oh, the switch can happen so imperceptibly sometimes. The poet laments how the gold grows dim, but what is even more precious than gold in the Christian life? What? Our faith, our faith in our God. But how easily we, we exchange our faith for things of lesser value. And so let me ask you, has your faith grown dim? Should we be lamenting, oh, how their faith grows dim? Listen, the last year that we had, nobody's faith is in the same place. Nobody can say, man, I'm just, I've just been coasting. I've been coasting so well. Uh-uh. Either your faith is stronger than ever or it's growing dim. Which is it? Can you look at your life right now? Do not answer too quickly, but answer it. Can you look at your life, your devotion to God? Talk to the people who know you. And can you say, it's more vibrant, it's more alive, it is not dim. You could be in the middle of a massive storm, that's fine, but you're clinging to Christ. And you know that by faith, he will preserve you. Listen, there are deeper ways to starve than lacking food. And it's a famine of God's word. Israel stopped listening to God's word and everybody went hungry physically and spiritually. The only one way that we as a church and that we individually will be vibrant and healthy, not shriveling up, not dry as wood, is when we feast, when we feast on God's word and we feast often and we feast together. Without God, people perish. Faith, you know this from Romans, faith in God comes through hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Where is your faith today? Is it dim? Is it gone? You're barely hanging on. But there's also an urgent salvo for us here, calling us to go to people who are perishing without God and plead with them. 2 Corinthians 4 says, but even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Just like prophet and priest at this time were stumbling about, they were wandering about on the streets blind. So also in our day, there are many blind people wandering about in digital spaces, seeking comfort, seeking meaning, finding instead confusion and death. They are wondering about buying clothes, buying delicacies, buying another attempt at happiness, happiness that will never come until they turn to Christ. They're wondering about going from this job to this relationship, to this trip, to this event, postponing the inevitable bitterness and emptiness. You all know people like this. We all know them. And this kind of text, when we see people perishing without God, should 
prompt us to want to go with them with the word of Christ. The good news is that the God of this world can't hold a candle to the God of the ages who sees, who finds people, that's all of us, who finds people perishing in darkness and shines on them, on their heart, the light of the gospel, of the glory of Jesus Christ. And what happens? They come alive. If you know Jesus, that's what happened to you. Whether you were six or 16 or 60, it doesn't matter. That's exactly what happened. And God alone can do that. So what do we do? We go to them and proclaim Jesus as Lord. That's what we do. We entrust to God what only God can do, which is open their hearts, shine the light of Christ on them so that they see him for who he is. What do we do? We have to bring the word of Christ because listen, apart from the word of Christ that we bring to them, they will never come alive to Jesus. And so we want to read texts like these and become more eager evangelists. I want that. I need that. But we all do. We also want to see and remember the lamentations dignifies the suffering of the world by giving suffering a voice. These sufferers in lamentations demand to be heard. God wants us to hear them. He put the book in his word. Their anger, their confusion, Their despair must be heard. And as we hear it, we should become more human, more empathetic. We should become more at one with the human race. You guys, this is a big deal. If you're a young person here or you're an older person, it doesn't matter. We are becoming more dull and dumb because we because of this mindless, endless TikTok videos and Instagram feeds and video games and all these other things that we put before us that numb our senses. Do you know what I'm talking about? They're numbing our senses. We live in this bubble where we think that, oh, everything is great, my family's great, I'll just go to my job and do my things and come back and we'll live in this haven of peace. And then, Social unrest happens in different parts of our cities and countries. Oh, what happened? What happens is that there is suffering going on all around us. These things that we read in Lamentations, you know what? They're happening to people around the world today. But it's so far from our daily existence that we think, no, everything is great. And we are numb. We are numb to the human pain that's all around us. Listen, Judah was suffering because of their sin, but not everyone who suffers, it's because of their sin. And if compassion should rise in our hearts as we read about Judah's suffering, which surely is part of the purpose of this book, then how much more should we grow in our ability to see the unjust suffering of the world and do something about it? We cannot respond to the fontines of the world and be cold-blooded and simply say smugly, well, they're receiving what they deserve. Lamentations is here to teach us to mourn well, which includes mourning with those who mourn. Hebrews 13, 3. Remember those in prison 
as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you are in the body. Do you see that? Because we live in physical bodies, it means that we also could end up in prison. We also could be mistreated. And that fact alone should fill us with compassion and move us to fight for the oppressed and downtrodden of the world. And I hope that that's one of the effects that this series has on us that makes us more sensitive to the suffering of the world and agents of change. And finally, there's also great comfort for us in this passage of scripture. Great comfort for us because the new beginning that was coming to God's people on the other side of the exile looked forward to a time when God's son would take upon himself the iniquity of God's people. A time when God would be able to say, not just for a season, but for all eternity, the punishment of your iniquity is accomplished. Did you get that? Lamentations 4.22, circle it, highlight it, learn it. It's here for you, church. The punishment of your iniquity, Woodside Royal Oak, is accomplished. How great is that? It's what we sang at the beginning. It's what we're going to sing in just a moment. It's accomplished. The punishment has happened, not just for a season, for all eternity. It's done. Jesus descended into ruin from heaven to earth, to the cross, to the grave, to death, to, in order to pull out of death and oppression the children of God. He went alone. He went hungry. He was despised so that we could be accepted and loved and brought into the family of our heavenly father and be filled with his presence and favor. Church, let's learn. Let's receive this word from Christ and grow, grow in our gratitude grow in our gratitude. We will never go into exile because Jesus is our king, our prophet, our priest, and he never defiled himself, ever. He is holy, innocent, unstained, separate from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. So let us go to him. And let us bow before him. Let's pray. Father, we are humbled by this word, this difficult word from this difficult chapter in Israel's history. Father, thank you for feeding us by it. Lord, we would not choose it. These are not the kinds of stories that we like. We like rags to riches. We do not like the descent into ruin. And yet, Father, there is so much that you have here for us. And so teach us, we pray. Father, I pray for those whose faith might have grown dim over the last year. They may not know it, but you do, God. 
Father, I pray that you help us. I pray, Father, that all of our faith would, would be more vibrant, more fiery, more alive. I pray, Father, that the descent into ruin would not be happening to us gradually, almost imperceptibly. And then what we have is a divorce. Then what we see is someone in a sexual relationship with someone not their spouse. Then what we see is someone saying, I'm done. I'm done with church. I'm done with God. Oh, Father, keep us from that fate. Help us cling to you, Lord Jesus. Help us see you and know you and love you. And know that you paid for us. You descended into ruin, oh, Lord Christ, to save us, to pull us out of that ruin eternally. Thank you. We love you. We love you. We trust you. We know that apart from you, we perish. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org slash connect to introduce yourself today.